We've asked for blessing this morning. We've sought the Lord's blessing together. And there's our answer. Stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed. So they find, as he promised, perfect peace and rest in him. I hope you can sing that this morning from your heart, that you have peace and rest in the Lord, even if other things are not at rest in your life, that you find it in him. If you would turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 with me. When my siblings and I were young, younger, and we were going to some public place or uh, attending some function or event that was kind of out of the out of the routine, we might hear something like, "Don't act like somebody else's kid." Don't act like somebody else's kid. And it was just uh, one of the many. Uh, clever phrases that my dad used to convey, really, you could call it a, a family value to us. Every family has them, whether they're they're spoken or not. And sometimes we teased him about that one. We would kind of twist his words and probably use it against him because we were, uh, well, because. And, uh, but I think part of, at least part of what he meant was something like, okay, we're going to this place, teenage son who's not given to maturity. Remember that you're a McLean and that you represent all the McLeans by your behavior. Act appropriately, act decently. You are my child. Remember how I've trained you. There's just a, a kind of a check for us right before a little reminder, right before we went in or whatever, about some of the, the, the greater truths in life that matter, that young people tend not to think about. And I think in our best moments, I, I think I could say for myself, I think it helped me exercise some restraint and some seriousness. I think it was largely helpful, something we needed, because we're not given to sobriety necessarily when we're young. And our text for this morning, as we get into the last chapter of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, Paul continues on the topic of end times, the last things. If you study, Doctrine, it would be called eschatology, the, the study of last things. And in chapter 4, he doesn't want this church, verse 13, to be uninformed about those who are asleep. You might call this, in kind of a formal study of doctrine, personal eschatology, not you know judgments and uh, all of these other things that are going to happen, but personal eschatology. What happens at the end of a life? Death and personal resurrection. Now, in chapter 5, as to the times and the epics, brethren, he turns to kind of a broader study of end things. And in this text, Paul continues writing about end times to remind these believers to be sober. Be sober. Specifically, as we read, you'll see the day of the Lord is an encouragement to saints to be sober. And in relation to the greater theme of the letter, as we've studied through this, the, the theme that I've kind of uh, returned to is that God preserves his own by sanctifying them. The way that God carries his people all the way to eternity is 
hand in hand with the path of sanctification. It's, it's a road to glory that's a road of growth. If God is going to stabilize you and keep you enduring in your faith, it's going to be as you are growing as a Christian. That is how God preserves his people. In relation to that, sobriety and sanctification go hand in hand to continue on this, this road of sanctification. That's the road to glory. We must remain spiritually sober. This word has the idea of restraint, self-control. You could say with our senses about us, exercising sound moral judgment. This would stand in contrast with literally drunkenness. We even use that word today. How long have you been sober? It's opposite of drunkenness, kind of metaphorically speaking. It's kind of opposite of the mania, being a, a maniac, having not really having your moral judgment about you. And the fact is, our souls are at stake. And the devil is trying to ruin us. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, you get, you get a real vivid image of this road that Christian is on. And he meets opposition. And it, it's at the cost of his soul. That's what's at stake with him. So we must continue to live like we're really headed where we say we're headed. And to do that requires seriousness about the truth, about sin, about the world, about the devil, about God, about his judgment. We have to be serious about these things. If we get drunk, if I could say it this way, if we get drunk on the world or on our sin and we lose our spiritual sense, we'll lose our way. Our faith will be undermined. It will be in jeopardy. God strengthens our faith in essential ways by sobriety. And I'm not saying you can lose your salvation, but we must believe God's revelation about the future. If we're going to have a proper outlook on our lives, we have to take it seriously. It's important. Because the final proof of a Christian is when he arrives at glory and his faith has endured. Let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need for anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, peace and safety. Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like, a labor, like labor pains upon a woman with a child. And they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night. And those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. The day of the Lord is an encouragement to saints to be sober. And in this passage, kind of where we're headed, You'll see in the first three verses, 
Paul talks about the day, the day of the Lord. And a few things about that day. And then in verses 4 through 8, he turns to talk about the people of the Lord. Look in verse 4. He makes a transition. But you, brethren, he's talking about them, the audience, the readers of that church in that time. The people of the Lord. The people who are to live in light of the day of the Lord. And then in verse 9, he turns to the plan of the Lord. For God has not destined us for wrath. And he really gives them the foundation of their hope and their outlook on life. The day of the Lord, it's coming. The people of the Lord, the ones who live in light of that day, and the plan of the Lord. So first, notice that the day of the Lord is something we ought to think about and know about. That's what Paul is saying in the first three verses. Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. In verse 1, Paul's kind of referring to the revelation about the day of the Lord. He says, now as to, this is a new topic for this church in this letter. He's done this a few times. If you look back in verse 9 of chapter 4, it's the same phrase. Now as to the love of the brethren, that's one topic. Verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. There's the same words there, not in the same order, but now as to those who are asleep. And now he turns to another topic in in chapter 5. And the topic is times and epochs. And if we're going to make a distinction between these words, it would be kind of the difference between calendar time and the, the times of eras and seasons. Like the Bible might speak of the time of the Gentiles or the time of the end. It's not really a calendar reference as much as it is a reference to the kind of time that it is. And both of these, you notice, are in the plural, times and epochs. Indicates probably lots of actual years and eras that are involved in the end times. And it probably suggests the many stages and events of that future day of the Lord. You could say the tribulation, the millennium, the white throne judgment, the final destruction of heaven and earth, the eternal state. All of these times and epochs, these years and eras. And this church is probably curious. Maybe about the timing of these things, especially the timing of the rapture. Wouldn't you like to know? Wouldn't we all like to know? But apparently this is something that Paul wrote to them about. Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, Christians, and people that he's just assured will be raptured when Christ comes in the air, verse 15. This we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. He will descend all of this noise and glory. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we shall be with the Lord always. Brethren, this is true of you. Now to something that evidently will happen after this. What does he say? And the rest of the verse, you have no need of anything to be written to you. 
Paul seems to be pointing them back to what they do know, really kind of reinforcing truth that perhaps he taught with them, taught them in his short time with them before he was chased off and chased out of Thessalonica. You don't need really anything new. And we need that, don't we? Why does Paul repeat himself? Why does he go back to what they already know? Well, we need repetition, don't we? Sometimes maybe it drove you crazy in high school. Haven't we learned this before? Why do I have to take another math class, another English class? Spoken it since I was a kid. Well, we tend to wander from what we know, especially spiritually. And of course, uh, I think we could could study a number of cross-references here that speak of this same issue of what the end times will look like. And, and we ought to, and I think we'll, we'll do some of that as we get to the, what Paul calls the day of the Lord. But it's striking at this point that Paul doesn't get into that here. He says, you don't need anything new. For the purpose of this church, maintaining their faith and enduring pressure that's coming against their faith, maybe open persecution, what they knew was sufficient for them to know. And what is it? The day of the Lord is coming in judgment against sinners, really judgment of of terror and destruction. And God's people must live as his people because of what he's destined for them to receive. That's really the substance of what he says. This is enough for you to know. You don't need more than this. It's sufficient. So even if you're here today and you, you know a lot about the end times and you have, maybe you have lots of opinions about how things will go and what will happen, be careful not to miss, miss the forest for all of the trees, right? Jesus is coming again. And we must be ready for his arrival. It's personal. That's the point. Nobody knows when, but we all must be watchful. That's how God designed it to work. And that requires being careful to walk closely and obediently with the Lord every day. So that's some of the revelation that has come out about the end times, the times and epics. And there is more, and we ought to know that, but what does Paul turn to next? For you yourselves know full well, he talks about the arrival of the day of the Lord. They have a firm grasp on this truth. They don't need anything new, like we said, though though God's revelation of the future isn't complete, it is incomplete. It's not everything that we could know that there really is going to happen, but it is sufficient. It's enough for us. And we ought to know it fully, what he has revealed, but we don't need to know more than he's revealed. He gave us just what we need. And that's what Paul is saying. You yourselves know full well, they're in a good spot with this. You know full well that the day of the Lord will come. Actually, literally is coming. It's not future. It's in the present, this verb. It is presently approaching and it's very near. Literally this this day of the Lord, you could translate just the sense of those words, not translate, but you could give the sense of those words in the phrase, the time that belongs to the Lord, the time that belongs to Yahweh. In the sense of how one author put it, God gave mankind time. And what have we done with that time, largely, since Genesis 3? We've sinned. We filled it with rebellion against God. And that time of man is going to run out. And what comes next is the time that belongs 
to Yahweh. And soon, when that time comes, God will do everything that he wants in light of what mankind has chosen to do with the time that he gave them. This is the day that belongs to Yahweh, to do everything that he pleases, everything that he's promised. So literally, just those words, this, you could think of this in terms of the time that belongs to God. But theologically, if I could just give, it, give a de- definition here, when you, when you take all of what the, the Bible says about this, because this phrase, the day of the Lord, occurs a lot in Scripture. If you read the, the, the Old Testament prophets especially, you'll see this phrase, the day, the day of God, the day of the Lord, it's often referred to. So you've got to, when you're studying Scripture, you kind of have to take a wide view of what does Scripture say about this, because we don't have a book of the Bible called the day of the Lord, right? So I, I would define it this way. I'm quoting here, a period The day of the Lord is a period of sovereign and spectacular divine intervention in human history to accomplish God's prophesied purposes of judgment on his enemies, blessing on his people, and dominion over the earth. There's this time coming. It's kind of this this complex of events where there will be spectacular things happening. God is going to divinely intervene in human affairs in a way that he's never done before. And he's going to accomplish everything that he's promised to do that is still unfulfilled regarding judging sin, judging his enemies. He is going to do it. And that's part of why God tells us about the day of the Lord. He's going to bless his people. There are still promises, even in the Old Testament, towards the Jews that are going to be fulfilled in the future. God will do it. And of course, towards Christians, all the promises of salvation that we have, and then he will reign over the earth. This phrase, as you read it in scripture, the day of the Lord, often does refer to historical judgments, especially in the, in the prophets, the minor prophets, like the day of the Lord towards Egypt. You can read about that in various places, but Jeremiah 46 is one. That's the day of the Lord, but it's the day of the Lord coming against Egypt, and that happened historically. There's the day of the Lord against Edom. If you want to read the book of Obadiah, you see a lot about Edom and the day of the Lord coming against it or against Judah. That's almost what the whole book of Zephaniah is about. Or it's even universal in some cases, Zechariah, especially chapter 14. And that is kind of to the end, the last day of the Lord. And it's clear in each of those historical cases, are you tracking with me here? Against these nations that happened in history, that those judgments in history reveal something or anticipate something about the last day of the Lord. So they're, they're kind of an example of what's going to happen. And not everything that happened there is going to happen. Uh, not everything that's going to happen in the end happened in every single one of these historical ones, but there are kind of similar things that come up in each of these historical pronouncements of the day of the Lord is coming against you, Egypt, Edom, Babylon, Judah, And in each of those, there are themes that come up. And that really is how we understand about this final day of the Lord that Paul is writing about here. And some of these themes are its nearness. That's that's referred to frequently. The fact that it's going to be universal. That's referred to in the Old Testament. There's going to be war. There's going to be darkness. There's going to be revenge and judgment on sin. There's going to be devastation. There are many references to fire. Even even specific references to harm, to domestic animals, death, a lot of negative things. But there are some positive things too. 
especially towards God's people, blessing God's presence with them. And even in this letter, Paul has referenced that there will be wrath. Look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Talking about the, the salvation of these Thessalonians and the report that was going out about them and their conversion. What, what has happened among them that they are waiting for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. It's a day of wrath, judgment, destruction. And it's coming. And how will it come? How will it arrive? Just like a thief in the night. Unannounced, unexpected, unwelcome, you can say unsafe, it's dangerous. It's part of the evidence why I believe Christians aren't going to be here for it because we, we do not dread God in this way like unbelievers do. It's, it indicates judgment and destruction that's due for sin. But what does the gospel teach us? That God has poured out his wrath on sin on Christ. And if we believe in him, God has satisfied his wrath in Christ. And there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Believers don't face this. But unbelievers do. Jesus spoke about the day of the Lord while he was on earth. You can read about it in Luke. He spoke of it this way. It will come like a thief. Paul spoke about it this way. Peter speaks about it this way. Jesus in heaven speaks about it this way. He speaks about it this way in Revelation, and John records it. So this is what it's going to be like. Whatever it means, it's going to be like this. Everybody knows it. Everybody's saying the same thing. It's going to come like a thief in the night. And if you think, how does a thief come? Well, they're never going to announce that they're coming. You're not going to expect it. That's part of what makes them sneaky and effective. You're never going to invite them, and it's rarely safe. So it will arrive like a thief in the night, but then Paul turns to the destruction of this day. Verse 3, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. This destruction really, isn't it? It's promised against deserving, rebellious sinners. What does Paul say? They are saying, look at the end of the verse, they will not escape. He's not talking about the believers anymore. He's talking about those who are unbelievers, those who are outside of Christ. It's really in contrast with brethren, brothers. And this is part of why the Old Testament prophets preached like they did. Why does it matter if I'm not going to be there? These prophets preached about it to warn unbelievers that it's coming. Flee from the wrath to come, Jesus said. But what does that do for believers? Isn't it disheartening when a lifetime criminal, a repeat offender, gets off with nothing? Is there any justice in this world? What is God doing? He's bearing with patiently sinners. He's not striking them down, down immediately. But what does that look like sometimes to us in our feeble sense? Is there any justice in the world? Is God really going to judge? Well, fortunately for us, God brings this thunderbolt all throughout Scripture. The day of the Lord is coming. There will be justice on sin. 
That's a warning to sinners. It's an encouragement to God's people. It's a warning to those who claim to be Christians and walk in their sin and do not turn from it. And that's why we say repent in your unbelief. It might seem otherwise, but God will judge. He will. It's coming. And it will be on your own head if you mock your way to the grave. This destruction is promised against they. And it'll come despite really a a prevailing false security. What are they saying? While they are saying peace and safety. There's really a lot of feeling in this this declaration. You can kind of get a sense of the, the human pride in it. And you can almost hear it today in our own day. The world might be getting worse and worse. We're growing increasingly insane and violent and perverted in our moral sense, but we have money, we have technology, we have a military, we have centralized power, whatever it is. We are the human race. Do you think this was said at the Tower of Babel? There's a false sense of security everywhere among believers, Paul says. And it really is based on ignoring all the consequences of sin that God is waving before our eyes. Why is this world as bad as it is? I had someone at my door a few weeks ago trying to convince me that there was nothing wrong with the earth. Why is the world so bad? Because of sin. And God repeatedly brings it before our eyes to say, this is because of your sin. Turn from your sin. It's only going to get worse. And it's only going to come personally down to you. But men ignore all this evidence. Because they reject God. They refuse to believe God. What was it like in Noah's day? God won't do that. He hasn't done it yet. We've never seen rain. Where's the proof? You're nuts. They mocked their way to their grave, didn't they? At 7 a.m. on Sunday, December 7th, 1941, two U.S. military officers were rising in their respective quarters. I'm borrowing this from a book that you may have read by Don Whitney. He writes this, everyone at Pearl Harbor was unprepared for what happened that morning. Most were still sleeping when the first bombs fell. These two men had planned a round of golf together as they looked outside of the partly sunny skies and thought a beautiful morning for golf. More than 175 Japanese planes close to within 130 miles of Oahu. But it's especially significant, he says, that the day of infamy caught these two men by surprise. One of these two men was husband Kimmel, the admiral over the fleet stationed at Pearl Harbor. The other one was Lieutenant General Walter Short, commander of all military forces in Hawaii. Before they left for the golf course, the sky was split apart by an unexpected enemy, and nothing was ever the same again. They had a false sense of security, didn't they? They had no reason to think anything was wrong. We have very little control over our own safety our whole lives. But God has great control 
over it. Peace, safety. What are these men confiding in who are saying this? Not God. They're confiding in stuff. They're confiding in, they're, they're, they're relying on their own ability to preserve themselves. Do you trust God? God is in complete control. God knows when he is coming. This day will come despite a a false sense of security, and it will arrive with sudden and alarming inevitability. It will come, Paul says, suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child. Someone said the sudden destruction will over take them that's actually kind of a, a literal rendering of the word like the like the birth pains a pregnant woman experiences if you've uh, experienced if you've heard of the nesting influence you might know a little bit about this as a woman approaches her due date she just has this really strong urge so i hear some women do um, my wife did They're just doing everything to get ready. And it's, you know, I'm going to make meals for the freezer. I'm going to get the nursery set up. I'm going to get out the baby clothes. I'm going to set up my bag. We're going to, you know, take classes or whatever. We're going to clean the house. We're going to plan out the hospital route. And it sounds more like a first-time parent. But when those labor pains come, right, doesn't matter what else needs done. What you wished to change, what you wanted to finish, it's coming. It's inevitable. And it's sudden. Maybe you're expecting it because you have a date in the future, but everybody wishes that date was sooner than it was. So you have more expectation than this day. This destruction, is it's just going to drop like a thunderbolt that no one saw coming. It will come with alarming inevitability, and it will end in certain and unavoidable destruction. They will not escape. There's actually two knots here. They shall not, not flee. There's no place to hide from this, even though people will try. And the Bible even tells us about this. In Revelation chapter 6, then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Can you imagine the dictators and the kings and the rulers and the presidents of the world doing this? They will. They will. Revelation 9 makes it even more graphic. When when John is describing the fifth seal judgment of, of locusts coming out of the bottomless pit. And they've got this sting in their tails that is excruciatingly painful to the point that men try to commit suicide to get away from it. The locusts were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. They will not escape. Why is that? Because there is only one escape from this judgment. 
and it's deliverance from God's judgment that Jesus provides. Jesus said, flee from the wrath to come. And where did he call men to go? Come to me for forgiveness of sins. That is warranting this judgment. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world the first time, but that the world through him would be saved. But when he returns, he will come in all his glory and he will come to judge. And it will be too late. And the danger for men is that they harden their hearts against God's offer of forgiveness again and again and again. And they do not turn from their sin. And they become hardened in their sin. And they refuse to come to Christ because they love their sin, is what John says. They loved darkness rather than light. Is that you? Is that you? Don't let that be you. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Turn from your sin. Turn to Christ. Your sin will send you to an eternity of suffering apart from God. Only Christ will save you from this judgment, this judgment that you deserve, that we all deserve. This is the day of the Lord, and it's sober. But then Paul makes a shift here from talking about the times and epochs to talking about the people of the Lord. But you, brethren, these are people who live in in light of that day. And I use that phrase intentionally because Paul talks about light, but they live in view of that day, you could say. And these are people who are light by nature. Paul says in the first two verses here, you brethren, verse four, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day by nature, you could say. We are not of night nor of darkness. This contrasts with they again. Brothers, you are not in darkness. If you would turn to Acts chapter 26, there are just a few places that this is mentioned. Acts chapter 26. And Paul writes about this elsewhere. Acts chapter 26. Speaking. Uh, Paul relaying his testimony of conversion on the road to Damascus. What did Jesus say was Paul's mission? I will send you as a witness, not only to the things that you've seen, verse 16, but also to the things which will, which, in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. You see the clear parallel here between darkness and the dominion of Satan and light and the kingdom of God and God himself. You can turn back to 1 Thessalonians. While you turn, I'll read from John chapter 1. 
John writes often on this theme of light. In the prologue, John chapter 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. When you're walking around at night and when I come up from my basement at the end of the day and now the sun sets a lot earlier, it's really dark down there. The darkness doesn't have a comprehending ability, but people who are darkness by nature do. That's what's being referred to here. The darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus, in speaking with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 19, says, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. This really is back in First Thessalonians, a focus on their identity, who they really are as Christians. He's saying you're not any longer in a state of being dead in your sins. Deserving God's judgment. You are not this, but you are this. What does he say in verse 5? For you are all sons of light and sons of day. Children of light. Children of the light who came into the world. In whom men must believe to become children of God, as John writes. Ephesians 5 verse 8 says, for you were formerly darkness, writing to the believers in Ephesus. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. He's speaking about their identity. For that reason, because you are all sons of light, sons of the day, sons of God, this day won't come upon you like this. God rescued from you from this in Christ. And then he goes on to say, We, verse 5, are not of night nor of darkness. No one in Christ has this nature anymore. It isn't our way of operating anymore. It's not our way of viewing the world. It's not our essence. This is Paul's hope, too. He's including all believers in this. And this really is speaking about the Christian's new nature. What does Paul write in 2 Corinthians? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. This really is in keeping with the the promises of the old, the new covenant. That you could read about in a place like Ezekiel 26, where Ezekiel writes, God saying, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So what, is this, what does this mean for us as we think about the people of the Lord being light by nature? This means Christian, brother, sister, God has given you a new heart. He's given you spiritual life. He's taken off the old man. He's laid aside your old nature that was entirely inclined towards you and towards your way and serving you alone. That's what we did before God gave us a new heart. What did God do? God made you light in the world by uniting him to Christ, by uniting you to Christ. Praise the Lord for that. We ought to thank the Lord for this gift. We don't have to serve sin anymore. It doesn't hold power over you if this is true of you. You have a heart to obey the law of God. The law has been written on your heart. There's another old covenant promise, new covenant promise. I will write my law within their heart. 
praise the Lord for that. If you see works that are pleasing to God and love coming out of your life, that really is evidence that God has done this in your life. Praise God for that. That's not native to your sinful flesh. That's something that God put there. But this also leads to the question, as we talk about a Christian's new nature, as opposed to the old man, are you sober about the state of your soul? Are you walking with God? Paul writes, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We we ought to constantly desire evidence of grace in our lives. What does that look like? Repentance of sin. Reconciliation with over conflicts. We, We need to see the fruit of the spirit continually in our lives. That's part of what it means to work out your own salvation. With fear and trembling. God is at work. If he's really in you, do you see it? Does it matter to you? Are you sober about your soul before God? But are you even in Christ? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in him? Then, as we'll see shortly, Paul really does turn to ask and lead us to ask the question to Christians. Are you continuing to walk in this way? If you are a child of light, are you living like it? turning from sin as a way of life, turning to Christ for forgiveness and cleansing. If you're not living the kind of life that turns from sin, that turns from from anger, from bitterness, from deception, from immorality, from evil thoughts, you are not thinking about your soul. Won't you look to the state of your soul and confess your sin and turn to Christ today? This is part of what it means to be sober. Be sober about what God thinks of you. That's part of the fear of the Lord. But if you are in Christ and you're walking with him, or you're, you're laboring, are you fighting with sin? you trying to obey, maybe not perfectly. Praise the Lord for the wonderful gift of a new nature. In salvation. That ought to humble us. That ought to fill us with praise, fill us with hope. But like I said, like Paul often does, next he, he turns and exhorts the believers to live like what they are. You're light by nature, but the job isn't done until you meet Christ, right? So you need to make sure you're 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 working to see your behavior match your nature. So then, verse 6 kind of infers from their their nature what their behavior ought to be. So then, then you see this this word, let us. This exhortation to our wills. Not only light by nature, but light by our behavior. Let us not sleep. And if I can jump to the end of these verses, not verses six and seven. Let us not sleep as those who do their sleeping and drinking at night. Don't act like you're a person of the night and of darkness because you're not. Don't act that way. Let us not sleep. Instead, let us be alert and sober, awake, sensible, self-controlled. You're a child of the light. Act like it. 
for those, he says, who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. And he's metaphorically using drunkenness kind of to portray people who are drunk on the world. One commentator said, the stupor, described it this way, the stupor of mind that's forgotten God and has blindly indulged in vices or someone sunken in indolence and senselessness in the world due to their ignorance of God without understanding and reason. This is people who are just burdened and almost senseless from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. They're inebriated with love of the world. Let us not sleep as they do. Let us be alert and sober. What is he talking about? What is the activity of these people in light? It's sobriety and alertness. It's temperance and moderation in everything. Putting off lusts of, after things in the world. Turning from sinful desires. Having all your senses about you spiritually. Maintaining good judgment. If, you're, if you know you're going to get engaged in a fight and somebody's going to come try to beat you up, you would never purposely go get drunk, right? You're never going to have your senses about you. Proverbs even describes this in Proverbs 23. I have redness of eye. I have wounds. I don't know where they came from. I'm going to wake up and do it again. It shows the absurdity of drunkenness, actual drunkenness. That's why drunkenness is such a good metaphor here for what the world does to us, what sin does to us. We just become immersed in it. So much so that we just, we become enamored with it and we end up inebriated by it to forget the truth that grounds our faith. We must have our spiritual sense always about us. Be alert, be sober, sobriety. It has everything to do with how we think about our sin, uh, how we think about the devil, how we think about spiritual conflict, how we think about the judgment of God. You have to be sober. If you look at the times that scripture speaks about this. You have to be sober because you're always prone to sin at every stage of life. And maybe there are some sins at your stage of life that most people are more prone to. You have to be sober because God is always watching you. God sees everything you do, even if you can keep it from everyone else. And we need to remember that God is watching us Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, because we're prone to, to prayerlessness and independence of God. That's still in every one of us. We need to be sober to that tendency. That we tend towards not praying and not depending on God. And the devil can exploit that in you. And of course, maybe the one you think of most. Be sober, be vigilant. Why? Because the devil himself walks around as a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He is actively trying to make shipwreck of your faith. Do you believe that? That is sober truth, something we need to be serious about. So we're light by nature, Paul says, if you're in Christ. You're, you need to be light by behavior. Make sure you live like God has enabled you to live, like God has declared you to be. But then he turns to the armor. We're light by armor, verse 8. But since we are of 
the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And as a helmet, the hope of salvation. We need to be sober, but how do we go about this? In short, I think the answer here is by sanctification, by putting on this armor. And what is the armor? The armor of believing God's words. When you read something in the Bible, when you hear something taught that's true from the Bible, do you believe it? Do you act on it? There is protection there. But there's also the armor of loving God, loving his law, loving his people. Since we are of the day, let us be sober. You could say by putting on the breastplate of faith, belief in God's word, love, love for God, love for his people. Do you love God? If we say we love God and walk in the darkness, we are liars and the truth is not in us. Do you really love God with that test? Do you really? Are you walking in darkness? That's not even saying that you are darkness, but if you're living like it, you're not loving God. You don't have that protection. There's protection in loving God, loving his people, but then there's also the armor of the hope of salvation. You could say the hope of glorification, if you want to use that term. This is the the armor, the protection of sanctification. The the expectation that God will finally save me in the end, not that that's a question until then, but he will glorify me. It will be completed. I think if we're going to make application of this, we should understand that when you are not growing spiritually, you are not sober spiritually. When you're not obeying God, when you're not turning from sin, You are vulnerable spiritually because it's like you're going into battle drunk. You don't have your spiritual senses about you. You're not holding firmly onto truth. You're not thinking the truth and you're not living the truth. But when you're serious about growth and Christ-likeness, and I will say this again and again and again, what does that road look like? It looks like repentance turning from sin and receiving the grace of forgiveness. When you're serious about growth and Christ-likeness, God uses that to make you sober about life, about sin, about the devil, and about him. So are you sober about the seriousness of spiritual war? The devil is trying to deceive you. Part of the nasty thing about deception is that you don't realize it happens until it's done. We think that we have all of our senses, but if we're walking in sin, we don't. The devil's trying to ruin you. He's trying to bring all of that slavery and that harm that God rescued you from back into your life. And what is he going to do? Oh, it's all right. No, he's going to gloat over you when it happens. Don't turn a blind eye to it. You are vulnerable if you're out of fellowship with God. You need armor. You need to keep growing in Christ. And that requires repentance of sin and constant looking to Christ in the word. The day of the Lord is coming. 
And the people of the Lord have a responsibility and a warning and an encouragement in that day. But then Paul turns toward the reason. The people of the Lord ought to live soberly because of God's plan for them. Not only because of what they really are, but because of what he intends for them. This is the outlook that we can have because of the destiny that we have. The plan of the Lord gives us hope in our outlook on life. Look at verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath. But, you could say, he has destined us for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you also are doing. What is the appointment of God? That's the word here. God has not destined us for wrath. The God who is coming in judgment has not appointed those who are his, to face his wrath. We do not face that. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Is that a precious truth to you? There is no condemnation left for you. Jesus dealt with that wrath in full. In full. God is your father if you're in Christ. And if you're in sin, he will discipline you. Because he loves you. But that's not wrath. That's love. God hasn't destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of wrath, for those who believe, he has appointed that they will be fully rescued in the end. That's certain. Christians will take possession of salvation in the end. That is God's promise. When we see him, we will be like him, or we will see him as he is. And that comes, I would note, exclusively and certainly through our master, our Lord, Jesus Christ. We obtain salvation through our Lord, Jesus Christ. Are you trying to get salvation through any other means? Through any other person? It's a false hope. Later in Romans chapter 8 that I've quoted a few times, I think this is what Paul refers to here in the, the final, I keep using the, the phrase, taking possession of salvation. Romans eight twenty nine. those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified it's certain and it's certain through christ who will get all the glory this really does doesn't it it puts our confidence in the promise of god to appoint us to salvation based on the finished work of christ that's our confidence whoever believes in him will not perish that's god's promise believes in him that's a reference to christ's work and his person but they will have everlasting life. That's the appointment of God. But what is the guarantee of Christ? We've referred to it. Salvation obtained through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Christ died as the substitute for sinners so that whether we are awake 
or asleep, whether we're dead or alive, there's no obstacle to this promise of God, even death. Why? Because he's already overcome death. We will live together with him. God will raise Christians from the dead and bring us into eternal, blissful, worshipful fellowship with God and the lamb forever. This is the doctrine of of the substitutionary atonement. We are made one with God. We are made right with God by a substitute. We're all naturally enemies of God, aren't we? We're deserving of death. We're deserving of judgment. Day of the Lord type judgment. Like we studied in Christian Life Hour, Jesus came into the world. He was made flesh as the eternal son of God. And he gave up his life to pay the penalty that we deserve. And God punished him in full so that God is both just and the justifier. He punishes sin and he forgives sinners. And he declares them righteous through Christ. Jesus is our substitute. And he's the only way to God. The only way to God. You must believe in him for salvation from this sin and judgment that is certainly coming. And when you do, this is God's promise to you. That your sins are forgiven. That you are declared righteous in his sight. That you have eternal life. That's the guarantee of Christ. That he died for our sins to pay for them and in our place so that whether we're dead or alive, when he returns, we will live together in perfect fellowship with him forever. Praise the Lord. If you're a Christian. And that is true for you. In the plan of God for the ages, he's appointed that his people will certainly be saved and that it's guaranteed to them by Christ risen from the dead, But God intends all of this truth to comfort us, to encourage us, to build us up, not just in the future, but right now. What is the edification of this truth? Verse 11, therefore, because God appointed this, because Christ guarantees this for that reason, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you also are doing the day is coming god's chosen you if you're in him god's made you new because you're certainly going to be with him in the end comfort each other comfort the saints in your church with these truths encourage one another to live this way that word can be translated comfort or encourage and build one another up edify each other speaking the truth in love is how Paul writes about it in Ephesians. The body edifies itself in love. It builds itself up in love on the truth. Just like you also are doing. Keep going. You still need it. That's never going to end. Until you die, you need this. You never don't need it. If you ever watch, maybe you've seen it in person, when you watch a lion hunt, Don't they often wait for the most vulnerable one of the herd to get too far away from the rest? Maybe a baby, maybe a calf. Either that one's unaware or they're slow or they're just hungry. Maybe they're a teenager, whatever it is. They're not sober to the danger. 
But who is? The moms of the herd, right? You see them, they're like, they're pinned to their sides all the time. They're there, they're alert to the danger. Point is, we need one another to remember the truth and to feed on the truth. It's how God intended it. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. If you find yourself there, where do you think you are in relation to the herd? So are you sober about sin? That's what Jesus died to rescue you from. God hasn't destined you for wrath. Are you sober about God's wrath against sin? Don't play with sin. Don't play with sin. And are you sober about your need for fellowship? Hebrews says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Is it possible to be deceived? But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. We are prone to this. We are prone to wandering. Do you take this seriously? The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is weak, James writes, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So Christian, judgment is coming. God will keep his word to judge sin and to do away with it. And if you're here and you're outside of Christ, judgment is coming. God will judge you if you don't turn from your sin. But isn't our God merciful that if we do turn from our sin, he's faithful, he's consistent, he'll always do it. And he's just, he's righteous, he's allowed to because he dealt with sin. He's faithful and just to forgive sin and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. You must turn from your sin. May the Lord help us to be sober about what's coming. Let's pray. Father, you've given us what we need to know. And this is sobering. It's serious. Our souls are at stake in this. I pray that if there are any here who are in sin, that they would turn from it, that your word would would break their hard heart like a hammer, break stone. You would use it like a fire. And you would grant grace for men to turn from their sin and believe in you, whether that's for the first time, if they're a Christian, that you would rescue them. Our, our world is not one that encourages sobriety, but I pray that you would help us to walk as children of the light. Thank you for this warning. Thank you for the encouragement of your justice and the mercy that you give us 
time to proclaim the good news of the gospel to those who are perishing in their sin. Help us to do it and to be urgent about it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.